Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. This is the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Ian Marks. I'm a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine, and in this episode, I'll have a brief but illuminating discussion with cinematographer Vanya Chernyul, ASC HFS, about his work on the George Pelicanos and David Simon HBO series, The Deuce. The Deuce is set in New York City during the 1970s, a time when rampant crime and economic collapse threatened to rot the Big Apple from the inside out. An old system was falling away, taking taboos and hang-ups with it, while enterprising business people such as the Martino brothers, both of whom are played by James Franco, and back-alley auteurs like Eileen Candy Morell, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, rushed to fill the vacuum, bringing with them a lucrative and exciting new medium, pornography. Uh, Vanya, thank you for joining us today, and uh, thanks to the Local 600 office here in New York City for hosting us. I want to jump right into our questions. So the show is set in uh, the early 70s in, in New York City, uh, which in terms of aesthetic represents not only a specific era, but a, a specific place. How did you want to portray that? Well, I was always fascinated by that period in, uh, in America. It was not only because it was the most fertile period in American cinema, I think, uh, and all the movies that I loved that, uh, that were shot in New York in the 70s. But also, uh, I thought it was a, a breaking point in the culture and, and politics of the country. And New York City was also uh, on the brink of bankruptcy, uh, but also an epicenter of uh, fight for human rights. Uh, it was a really fascinating context. So the research for the series was a real, real pleasure. Uh, for me. I rewatched all the films, all my favorite films from the 70s, like Taxi Driver, um, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Serpico, but I didn't want to imitate the, the lighting style of those films. I thought uh, it was more for the story, it was better that we go for the look of the show that's uh, like a found documentary footage rather than found uh, feature film footage. Knowing David Simon and, uh, and uh, George Pelicanos' work, they were interested in authenticity. So I wanted the look to feel as authentic as possible, which wasn't easy in New York. Uh, you know, New York changes every couple of years. I arrived to New York in the mid-90s, and it's really hard to recognize New York from the 90s, and this is New York from 40 years ago. So um, in a search for a and general approach to lighting. Um, well, first thing I noticed was a color contrast and cacophony of color that, especially on 42nd Street and Times Square, the streets were still lit by the um, mercury vapor lighting, which had uh, that cyan uh, glow uh, to the streets, which was contrasted with the aggressive, bright neon signs and uh, all the colors coming from everywhere. And I thought there was a great opportunity to use that contrast for the story. Uh, which was about the conflicted energies of that world. I thought that color contrast uh, was something that we could use to tell this story. 
you said that you were watching films that were set in New York during the 70s, and you have all these cinematographers who brought these different perspectives into what our collective memory of New York is. Is this your vision of what New York would have looked like at that time? Well, uh, I wanted to feel less lit than the, the material had to be uh, in the 70s. I wanted to feel as it was shot by a documentary cinematographer uh, using as, m as many of the uh, practical sources as possible. And uh, t with today's technology, it's easier to do that. And you can light with smaller sources. And I wanted those practical sources to be as accurate as possible. Uh, we used real neon signs from the 70s which was very hard because they were very temperamental, of course, <clears throat> uh, being 40 years old. But the use of correct practical lights was very important. Also, we asked the city to shut off the city lighting and so we can bathe the streets in, with the proper color. In, in recreating New York City, production design would seem to play a huge role in this. And so let's, let's talk about your collaboration with production designer Beth Mickle. Uh, Beth also uh, designed the pilot, so when I came uh, to, to deduce to shoot the season, she already knew much more about the world and about uh, how, where the show was going, and uh, I wanted to learn as much as possible from her. And she also, in our department, she has put a lot of uh, references, photographs from the era um, on the walls, and I was spending a lot of time there just looking at the, at the, at the pictures. There was one particular photo that I saw on, on the wall in our department um, and I never found out who the author, author was, but it was an image of a woman frontlit by the red neon with a greenish cyan city behind her and I thought uh, that was the inspiration for me for the color of light. So it was sometimes it's just one image that you see that can really trigger the, the, the inspiration. Did you have any interactions with the pilot cinematographer Pepe Avila del Pino about what he and Michelle had, where they had come from creatively and where they feel like the show should go from there? The pilot was already shot when I came on board, but there was the opportunity to keep developing the look because the the world is changing. Uh, in every episode we see the characters uh, and the world changing. It was completely appropriate for the world to look different in the, in episode four than it did in episode two, for example. Why is that? Uh, just because the world is changing before our eyes, different aspects of the world get revealed, and also the rise of the porn industry. We, we can observe the very beginnings, humble beginnings of that branch of our industry. Um, we're Basically, you have these enthusiasts and amateurs filming with uh, very uh, basic equipment. And then as, as that industry develops, they're starting using more and more uh, sophisticated tools. So it wasn't so crucial to, main, to, to maintain the same look uh, from, the, from the pilot. Uh, I had, uh, we had some interaction. I think Pepe was already on, on, on a different uh, project, so it's, it, you know, for us cinematographers it's always hard to be in the same place at the same time. But uh, definitely a lot of the work that Michelle has uh, done in the pilot was bookended in the final episode, in episode 8, which came from the writing of course, but also it was very important for Michelle to repeat some shots um, from the pilot in a different world. So the characters have changed, the world has changed. Uh, but we wanted to wanted to repeat some shots just to emphasize how much. How did you approach the period in terms of the, the choices of cameras and lenses that you used? 
we used P-Vintage lenses, which is uh, old glass from the, from the 70s uh, that Panavision uh, rehoused uh, and built. I don't know how many sets there are in existence. Uh, I used uh, P-Vintage lenses before on Marco, on season one of Marco Polo, so I knew them very well. And uh, we tested them on the streets of New York, and uh, it was we really liked the roundness and the vintage look that we were getting organically from those lenses. So, as beautiful as they are, they are also uh, temperamental. So it was important to be able to close down the, the on the lens to get the lens to perform properly. Sometimes so I, I didn't have uh, the luxury on each lens to open up wide. Uh, so I needed a very fast uh, sensor, which I discovered in the Vericam 35. That was a sensor that was fast enough to allow me to take advantage of using the practical sources and be able to close down to something like a 2.8 at night. Uh, we also used a texturizer called Live Grain. Because the image coming from the camera was so clean, we wanted to rough it up a little bit and give it a little bit of the, of the film look. And where did you do your post? Post was done at uh, Technicolor Postworks in New York. Sam Daly was our colorist, and we collaborated very closely. He has built the lookup table that simulated the uh, Fuji film stock from, from the 70s, uh, specifically for the Vericam. And uh, we worked very closely in the first couple of weeks to uh, tweak the LUT until it became bulletproof. That was our starting point in the final grade also. We started basically where we left off in the dailies and uh, then the final color grading was just fine-tuning. What is it about that Fujicolor film stock from the 70s? Like what did that give you in terms of color and contrast? Um, well first of all the contrast was very deep contrast. I, I thought this uh, aggressive color contrast that we were using all the time worked with a lot of deep shadows. So that's something that I remember from using Fujistock and also we didn't want skin tone to look too glamorous. Uh, and I remember from a long time ago how I felt that the, the skin tone with Fuji felt a little more uh, uh, naturalistic. So Streaming platforms and networks now are asking people to deliver an HDR. Was that the case for the show? Not initially. When we first started we were only going to deliver in HD. And uh, somewhere, I think, uh, around episode four, we got requests from HBO to also grade one episode in HDR, and then they were going to decide whether to uh, also grade the whole season in HDR, which was a little bit of a surprise uh, because our lookup table was only, uh, we only considered HD when we were creating our lot. The LUT is very important to me because I, I, I put a lot of work into creating the right LUT, test it properly, and then I stick to it all the way to the very end. And uh, our LUT was not holding very well in HDR, so we had to figure out how to translate what was already done in SDR to, to work in HDR. Because you had that Fujifilm LUT, right? I mean, your LUT exactly. was designed to emulate the look of an old contrasty film stock. Exactly the opposite, right. So it was important, we wanted to take advantage of the HDR, but not change the look of the show. But since we worked with so much neon, it was great to be able to dig into those highlights and make the neon look uh, more realistic. So we were excited about the opportunity, but it was a very steep learning curve about how do we now reverse engineer the look, basically go from uh, starting with what we already have in SDR and go to HDR. Knowing what I know now, uh, I think I would uh, prep differently. 
and uh, I would definitely test the LUT in both uh, color spaces. But I'm very excited about HDR and all the opportunities that it's bringing. It offers a lot of possibilities that you don't have to use all at the same time. Did you have to uh, change the way that you lit the show? No, we just we just continued wor uh, working the way we started. Uh, and then in HDR, we took advantage of what we thought was good for us, and we ignored the rest, basically. You mentioned you know digging highlights out of neon lights and, and things like that. What else do you feel like was good for you in this particular case? Well, sometimes uh, you could uh, pull out a little more depth in the exterior night scenes. When you have the depth of the city, you could pull out maybe a few more blocks that was uh, not visible in SDR. Just uh, going from extreme brightness of neon lights to the detail in the shadow, we were able to pull, pull the detail in bo both extremes, but still maintaining the, the, the very contrasty uh, look that we set up for. And what didn't work? Well, what didn't work, because we were not set up for, for HDR, uh, it wasn't uh, the translation from one color space to the other was a little more difficult. We had to do a lot of shot-by-shot -shot work to, to make sure that the ideas from HDR were not lost in HDR. I think there's a way to set it up so that translation is much easier and the time spent in color grading is more, more efficient. But you monitored in, what, 709? Yes, yeah. so uh, because the way we were set up, we kept monitoring in 709 on the set. Mm -hmm. uh, so all this work was done in the post. I never had the SD, uh, HDR monitor on the set, which for future projects would be very exciting things to do because I could maybe uh, take advantage of the color space while I'm lighting and know how much do I have to protect the highlights, how much do I have to fill the shadows. You know, I would, I would be able to judge those extremes much more efficiently. When it came to choosing locations to portray this 1970s New York City, what were some of the rules that you had to play by? What were some of the things that you looked for out there in 2017? Well, first of all, to show New York from uh, Manhattan from 1970s, we had to a lot of times go away, far away from Manhattan. A lot of uh, our work was done uh, in Washington Heights on uh, 165th Street, so very far away from, the, from 42nd Street. Because the architecture was right and uh, the, all the, you know, the neighborhood uh, was willing to cooperate with us. They let us uh, replace a lot of the storefronts, uh, add our uh, neon lights to, to their windows. Just the neighborhood was very cooperative. It was, it was beautiful. Uh, I imagine that visual effects also come into play to create these period-specific details, erasing buildings in the backgrounds, cars, adding signs. A lot of the cleanup in the post was just to make sure that every traffic light looked, uh, looked correct. And uh, it's really impressive how accurate, I think, that the period was portrayed. We had some uh, simple uh, VFX work with the twin brothers that both played by uh, James Franco. Initially, it was because we had a very tough schedule and we, uh, sometimes we had uh, three locations in a, in a single day, single night actually, and the nights were, we were shooting in the summer, so nights were short. So um, we, we knew that we needed to move fast and uh, setting up a visual uh, effects shot with the twins uh, was time-consuming initially, uh, but then the whole crew learned how to be as efficient as possible getting this right because we would shoot one side of the frame with one brother and then James would have to go and uh, change his costume and makeup and uh, 
that was also becoming faster and faster uh, every week. But still, it, could, it would take from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. So we had to shoot. Uh, between, we couldn't just lock the set and lock the cameras and wait for James to come back. We had to go and shoot something and then come back to the setup. So the whole crew became really efficient in recreating the setup, taking pictures with their phones of where each prop would go. My camera operator, Oliver Carey, also documented everything about the camera and uh, we were getting very, very fast with that. So as the series uh, progresses, you see more and more shots where the brothers are together because it was just getting easier to do it. And more complicated shots too, like where they interact. Cor correct. So we were not afraid of doing more complicated things. and. Uh, it's incredible how advanced the technology is today uh, compared to only a couple of years ago. For example, on Marco Polo, I was not allowed to use uh, smoke in the shots with visual effects. They said they would add it later uh, because it would complicate their work in the post. And there's so much smoke in that. There's, there's a lot of smoke. Well, that was because everybody was smoking so much and uh, New York, there was also pollution in the city. So the use of atmosphere was justified by the period and, uh, and the place. Uh, which also helped me um, with the lighting approach because the atmosphere naturally added depth so I didn't have to separate the actors from the background with, uh, with lighting as much. Yeah, I, that's one of the things I really loved about watching the show too because you just you don't see people smoking like that anymore and the cinematographers lament that fact that like people don't smoke on television and people don't smoke in movies like they used to. So when they get the chance to light smoke like this, it's a real joy. And it also was appropriate for, so it wasn't just aesthetic choice, it was something that made sense for the world. And what you were talking about in terms of the sophistication of visual effects techniques now compared to a couple years ago might also answer the question about working with vintage lenses, which of course weren't designed to be more contrasty and have better separation. Was that something you had to take in consideration using older optics? Yes, uh, we framed a little wider. Uh, I think something like 15% so that uh, there's a little bit of a play for visual effects uh, work. Uh, and also I never shot uh, under I think T284 just because I wanted the lens to perform properly for those particular shots so it wouldn't create problems later. The emerging pornography industry plays a huge part in the story and then there are these behind the scenes moments documenting its rise from people's basements to a legitimate industry. It seems like these filmmakers had their own ideas about aesthetics and the way things should be photographed and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your research into that genre. Um, right, well, so we, there are also a lot of scenes in the, in the theaters where uh, uh, characters are watching the movies and so we, it was really strange watching a porn film with the with the co-workers, with the producer and a gaffer. <laughs> but uh, we looked at a couple of films and uh, we tried to figure out how they were shot. And uh, if you've seen episode two, very basic equipment was used. And then uh, in episode eight, you, you see some real movie lights, Fresnel 2Ks and 5Ks. Also, the way that those sets were lit influenced our look because... Uh, we didn't add any extra light. So basically when you see a, a set in the film, all the lighting is done with the lights that you see in the frame. Also, as the product was getting more sophisticated, when you see the films, see the product to shoot them, really shoot them on Super 8, 
So we did some Super 8 work because we felt anything else would feel like cheating, like trying to add grain and things like that. So we shot some footage on Super 8 cameras and that was a lot of fun. It took some testing to get it right. Um, there's the company in Los Angeles, Pro 8, that helped us uh, a lot, um, uh, providing the s stock and the cameras. And also uh, our colorist, Sam Daly, uh, lent us his Super 8 camera. It's interesting to hear these filmmakers talk about Marshall McLuhan and Hitchcock Truffaut. Like, they're not unaware of film and media theory. It's just that they never thought to apply it to their work. Simon and Pelicanos uh, were using the, the rise of the porn industry as a metaphor for capitalism and the wider aspects of society. But it's also a story about uh, how one branch of our industry is growing up. And uh, the whole crew is learning more about filmmaking and growing with Maggie Gyllenhaal's character uh, because she uh, becomes a film enthusiast and sh she sees this as her way out of the life that she's been living to that point. Um, so it's, it's also people who are making these films could be also uh, people who are in love with filmmaking and this is their only opportunity to do the art form. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who were really uh, passionate about making films at that time in this world. And that was the idea, following the growth of Maggie Gyllenhaal's character as a filmmaker reflected the, the, everything that was happening on the set. Michelle McLaren talks about how it was always important to shoot in a way that looked real and like how it actually looked. Like if you put a camera on two people having sex, it's not necessarily going to look beautiful and romantic. I don't know if you want to talk about this, but the sex scenes are pretty graphic, but also it is very documentary, it is very artistic, and it is very sexy too. And then of course there's moments where it's not. How do you interpret like an unsexy moment versus a sexy moment from the camera's perspective? Well, we definitely w didn't want to glamorize uh, anything about making these films, which is basically exploitation. So using lighting, uh, very, very uh, basic hard lighting uh, on the actors and not trying to beautify anything was the main idea. It really was, uh, most of those scenes were li really lit by a couple of uh, hard uh, direct movie lights. And uh, it was important not to get concerned about how the skin looks and things like that. We just wanted to be as naturalistic as it was. But uh, as Maggie Gyllenhaal's uh, character, Candy, is trying to uh, learn about directing and trying to find beauty in this uh, ugly exploitation, that was the main focus of, of those scenes. Right, because when she's directing, it becomes more sexy there is a realness to it. You see that what she's doing is she's bringing something else to the process. Because she loves these characters, she was one of them, she starts treating them as human beings. Uh, and uh, if there's any sexiness or beauty coming uh, from it, it's her approach to, to directing and her approach to these actors. That was cinematographer Vanya Chernyul, ASC HFS, talking about his work on the HBO series The Deuce. Thanks for listening. You can read articles and hear more podcasts about the art and craft of cinematography when you visit ASCMag.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content 
by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. Thank you.